note for our listeners. The following episode of this series was recorded just hours before the latest wave of violence engulfed Northern Rakhine. On the night of August 24, militants from the Arakan Rohingya Solidarity Army launched new attacks on police outposts in the region, killing at least 12 officers. As in October, the response from security forces has been immediate and massive. Media access has again been restricted, and both militants and security forces have been accused of committing abuses. At the time of recording, it has not been possible to verify these claims. The attacks came almost immediately after the Advisory Commission on Rakhine State, headed by former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, submitted its final report to the Myanmar government. The commission was tasked with finding sustainable solutions to the conflict, unrest and poverty in the state. At least 100 people have been killed in the latest violence and thousands displaced. This includes members of the Rakhine and Muslim communities, as well as minorities such as Hindus and Dainyet. Leaders of the Arakan Rohingya Solidarity Army justified the attacks by saying they were a legitimate step towards freeing the Rohingya. But the attacks have made the situation even more desperate for the people in northern Rakhine, who live in a state of heightened fear. In the early hours of October 9, 2016, Rohingya militants attacked border guard police outposts in northern Rakhine killing officers and stealing arms and ammunition. The group behind the violence has called itself Haraka al-Yakin, or the Arakan Rohingya Solidarity Army. The attacks represent the arrival of a new insurgency operating in the vast mountains of northern Rakhine and have shifted the dynamics of an already complex issue. Frontier's senior political reporter, Mrat Chortu, was in northern Rakhine state reporting on drug trafficking when the attacks broke out. On the morning of October 9, he received an unusual phone call from authorities. And then, you know, the police major called me. Uh, hey, you know, do you know what's happening? Like, hey, what's, ha- what's happening right now? Oh, uh, please come to me and, uh, you know, will you come along with me to, to go to the uh, command center? I, I went there uh, with him, uh, with my photographer. At command center, you know, I saw uh, some very few um, police, like Boraka police. You know, when we... Uh, when we are there, when we are going there, like two or three, the police, um, Boraka police, <coughs> sit in, you know, they're sitting uh, uh, gates. No one stopped us uh, at there. Like, you know, they ask me, they ask us, like, uh, where are you going? Um, you know, we are here to cover about, the, you know, what's happening uh, last night. That's all, you know. Uh, they, they didn't check what we are, you know, how we are here like that. Reporting at the time, he said the officers appeared to be overwhelmed by the attacks and were severely underprepared. Um, and then, you know, one police um, uh, came in in our conversation, and then he t- uh, talked to another police, like, you know, um, my, my gun uh, my gun are very, you know, old. You know, the, even, you know, when the attackers, like mili- militias are coming, and I couldn't even shoot them because, you know, my gun is, you know, even couldn't load. You know, I, I, I heard the conversation from then. And then, you know, other police, uh, Boraka police are uh, disappointed about their uh, uniforms and their, you know, equipment like that. I'm going In the immediate aftermath, uh, he and a handful of other journalists were able to conduct interviews with security forces. But on October 14, five days after the attacks, media access was shut down. Totally for Mount o and Budidong townships, uh, for the journalists, you know, it's blocked. Uh, but some, you know, special uh, reporter from pro-government uh, uh, journalists 
could go there. Boraga police um, took them to their tents. The military responded with clearance operations to root out the insurgents. And what happened next is highly contested. Security forces have been accused of using disproportionate force, including killings, mass rape and torture. In November, New York-based advocacy group Human Rights Watch released satellite imagery appearing to show widespread fire-related destruction in villages in northern Rakhine. It said at least 1,500 buildings have been destroyed in the area since the October attacks. Human Rights Watch said security forces were most likely responsible for the fires, but state-run media denied the accusations. In February 2017, the United Nations released a report based on accounts given by some of the tens of thousands of Rohingya who have fled northern Rakhine for Bangladesh since October. The report documented allegations of abuses by security forces and said devastating cruelty had been committed against those who had fled. But the government said those charges and several others made since October were not true. In that July, Frontier was part of a government-sponsored media trip to northern Rakhine that included visits to villages affected by violence, as well as interviews with senior figures. This included Thura Usanwin, commander of the Border Guard Police, which is responsible for security in northern Rakhine. He was appointed to the role immediately after the attacks when the former commander was fired. He said that the accusations being made towards security forces were incorrect. Some media gave the wrong information about security force banning village and committing rape. There was a lot of wrong information in the media. In some Muslim village, some incident happened where the Muslim population killed each other. The morning after that meeting, journalists on the trip were granted permission to enter Chagang Tong village, where some of the gravest human rights abuses were alleged to have taken place. Throughout the trip, officers from the border guard police had followed reporters closely, ostensibly for our own security. But in Chagang Tong, journalists asked that no security officers or members of the government entourage join. It was there that first-hand accusations of abuses were presented. Several women came from a nearby village to recount of how their husbands and sons had been arbitrarily arrested in a military operation conducted in November 2016. One of the most harrowing accounts came from a young Rohingya woman who told journalists she had witnessed her father tied up inside the family home as it was burned to the ground. She spoke to us at the spot where she said she had found his charred remains. A day later, in Sitwe, journalists were granted a press conference with senior officials from the Rakhine state government, including the state's chief minister, Unyi Pu, from the National League for Democracy. As the state government, we are trying to bend peace and stability to the state. To implement that, sometimes we need to provide the security force and conduct a security operation in the northern Rakhine. So in implementing this security operation, minor accident might occur, but it shouldn't be called ethnic cleansing or genocide. As you know, our state consulate is highly respected in the international community and respect human rights. The state government is implementing the recommendation of the state councillor according to the international norm for human rights. In December 2016, the Union government formed its own team to investigate whether security forces had broken any laws during clearance operations. However, the formation of the commission came in for fierce criticism from the international community as it was headed by Vice President U Mien Sui. Mien Sui is a former army general and is considered fiercely loyal to the army. 
the very institution accused of the abuses. In August, the Commission submitted its findings, saying it had found no evidence that security forces had carried out abuses. Instead, the Commission said any excessive actions may have been committed by low-rank individual members of the security forces. A statement by the Commission said, some incidents appeared to be fabricated, while others had little evidence. But Mintzwe's Commission is not the only body formed to examine the allegations. In March, the United Nations Human Rights Council passed a resolution forming an investigation team to probe rights abuses in Myanmar, with a particular focus on Rakhine. The government says the Commission would exacerbate an already tense situation on the ground and denied visas to its members. Independent analyst David Matheson says the government's position makes little sense and is damaging its credibility. I, d I don't see that it can aggravate the situation in Rakhine any more than the security forces are aggravating it. Um, it's, it's this constant frustrating uh, trope that they have that any kind of international pressure will exacerbate the situation. Well, going down and burning 1,500 houses exacerbates the situation, um, depriving hundreds of thousands of human beings of their identity um, and their right to be citizens. That exacerbates the situation. Um, and, and their complete um, inability to understand the gravity of the situation. That's what exacerbates the security situation. In, in other words, they're, they're looking at all this, they're refusing to do not just the decent, the decent thing, uh, they're refusing to do the rational thing. Um, I mean, what, I don't think we can exaggerate this too much. Um, what we're looking at now is the escalation of, or, of an already tinderbox security situation into something that, that could really get out of hand not just for Rakhine State, but for the rest of the country. Matheson and several other observers have called on the government to conduct a genuinely independent investigation on the ground. Now, the reason there's calls for an international investigation is because domestic efforts to investigate reports of serious human rights violations have not been done very seriously. Um, they've already denied there, was, there were no rapes. Um, uh, the Bengalis set fire to their own houses. Um, I mean, this whole slew of utterly callous, ridiculous, uh, it was like that when I got here kind of excuses, which is not the stuff of serious governments, and it's not the stuff of, of, of serious security forces. So they're not taking the situation seriously um, uh, when they should. And as a result, there's more international pressure. But the insurgency responsible for the October attacks appears to have embedded itself strongly into communities in northern Rakhine. Its presence has contributed to new fears among both the Rakhine and Muslim populations. A number of incidents in recent months, including several killings, have been blamed on the group by the Myanmar government. There is certainly a fear among both communities in northern Rakhine of this new insurgency. During the media trip, Frontier travelled to Maung village on the banks of the Mayu River. There, we spoke to a woman whose son had been kidnapped by suspected militants a month before. My son was a good man in the village, but in early July, while he was at home sleeping with his wife and son, some people came into the house and took him away. He was doing the business by driving the boat, but now we face difficulties for our livelihoods. A day after speaking with reporters, the man's body was found in a nearby creek. One point all sides seem to agree on is that the group appears to have a heavy presence in most villages in northern Rakhine. Independent analyst Richard Horsey said that the sense of hopelessness among the Rohingya population 
contributed to the emergence of the insurgency, but new technologies have aided its rise. I think this is something that the government hasn't recognised, that analysts didn't really recognise, that there was mobile telephone connectivity coming to this population, both on the new domestic networks, but also uh, through access to Bangladeshi networks for people who are closer to the border. Uh, and with the rise in availability of instant messaging platforms, uh, particularly WhatsApp, there was, a, there was an ability to connect with the world, to connect with family and the diaspora, but also to connect among each other. And that completely changed, I think, the, the political reality and the social reality uh, and, and how people's understanding of their plight uh, was, 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 uh, was formulated. Another contributing factor was the shutdown of people smuggling routes in the Indian Ocean in 2015. Previously, many Rohingya had paid smugglers to send them to Malaysia or Thailand, where they hoped to find work. But amid claims of massive abuses by smuggling networks, both on the water and in Thailand and Malaysia, authorities effectively closed access to the routes two years ago. Insurgent leaders have said they are not interested in the global jihad movement, but purely freedom for the Rohingya people, many of whom are consigned to camps and lack access to basic rights. But the Rohingya plight has garnered considerable attention, and there are concerns that the situation could attract more radical movements, something that would complicate the issue much further. Myanmar is now very prominent in global discussions of abuse against Muslims. In a sense, the Rohingya issue has become the global cause celebre for, in Muslim countries, in Muslim communities, uh, it's become the case of oppression of Muslim minorities, much as, uh, as Bosnia was in a previous generation, much as the Palestine situation has been for a long time. And regardless of the accuracy of that narrative, regardless of uh, how well-founded it is and, and, and so on, the reality is that that is what is being preached, not only in radical mosques in Pakistan, in Saudi Arabia, but across the Muslim world. Uh, and the dangers of Myanmar being on the global map in that way, being associated uh, with, this, with this situation, I think should not be underestimated. The Rohingya are not a group that are inherently easy to radicalize, said Horsey, who has closely monitored Rakhine State for several years. Um, uh, traditionally, this population has also not been uh, exposed to the kind of extremist teachings or the Wahhabist uh, strains of Islam that have been flowing uh, in, in, in other countries in, in, in the region. And so um, this didn't have to happen. It happened uh, despite the fact that this population was actually quite difficult to radicalize, despite the fact that over years of oppression, violent uh, opposition never became the resort, the, 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 the choice of first resort. It was always kind of seen as the, as the worst option and, and never followed by a majority. And yet today we have an armed group uh, which is embedding itself in communities. Unlike previous uh, Rohingya insurgencies in recent times, the, 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 uh, the Rohingya Solidarity Organization and so on, they're not based across the border in Bangladesh launching occasional forays. They are really embedded in communities in the north. Uh, and they have an awful lot of religious legitimacy and they have an awful lot of support. Uh, and that's going to make it incredibly difficult uh, to address. While the challenges faced in Rakhine State are complex, it is clear that the situation is even more complicated in the north of the state, where it appears there is little room for manoeuvring in the months or even years ahead. Progress there will require significant political will and a comprehensive strategy on the ground. Next week, in the final episode of this series, we will look further into the latest round of violence, 
the recommendations made by the Annan Commission and ask what measures need to be taken to achieve reconciliation in Rakhine State. I'm Oliver Slow, reporting for Frontier Myanmar. This podcast was produced by Victoria Milko, with additional reporting by Sue Myat Mon.